This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by columnist Melanie Phillips, parliamentary sketch writer Patrick Kidd and our chief political correspondent Michael Savage. It's not been a good summer for our increasingly cramped second chamber. The latest set of peerages confirmed their use as a reward for political donors, allies and lieutenants. The appointment of a prominent figure felled in the expenses scandal caused widespread disbelief and it all came after Lord Saul's alleged extracurricular antics had provoked new calls for Lord's reform of some kind. With the second chamber now bigger than ever and its reputation in question, will those calls, or indeed should they, come to anything? The claim that David Cameron had to buy a cheap pair of Asdawellis to visit the Somerset floods last year, when he had a perfectly good pair of hunters in the car boot, shows that we have reached peak vacuity in this image-obsessed era of politics. But is that their fault or ours? And is the key lesson of Corbyn mania that looks really don't matter? When I saw the Union Jack being raised again at the reopened British Embassy in Tehran, I felt sick to my stomach. Having put its name to the US-led deal which will enable Iran to acquire nuclear weapons and will also bring it billions of dollars to spend on yet more global terrorism, Britain was falling over itself to make money out of a genocidal regime which has British soldiers' blood on its hands for shame. Okay, well, let's start with your topic, Michael Savage. Um, Last week, the papers, I think, were almost completely united from left to right in uh, disappointment, verging on disgust at the uh, appointments to the House of Lords. But nothing's going to be done about the House of Lords, is it? The the Tories have a majority. Uh, The Lords aren't going to vote to abolish itself. We are are left with this chamber for a very long time. It's interesting because I think there's now several different issues going on. There was the old uh, Nick Clegg plan for an entirely elected second chamber, uh, complete reform. Uh, remodelling something like a Senate. Uh, That's going absolutely nowhere. He can do it in government. He certainly can't do it. Not as leader with eight MPs with the Lib Dems. But there is now, I think, two issues. One is over the sheer size of the place, 826 peers now, uh, second only in size to the People's Congress in China. It's not a good look. And secondly, just the fact that it's become accepted practice now to put allies, lieutenants, as I said, and party donors into the Lords as some kind of 
uh, prize. And I just wonder, on top of the fact that someone like Douglas Hogg, uh, who claimed or uh, perhaps uh, claiming for a cleaning a moat appeared on an expenses claim, was made appear. Uh, I just wonder, actually, has the time come for the Conservatives to do that? And there's one or two signs, actually, they will do something about numbers, at least. What are the signs? Well, I think the, the, the leader in the Lords has, has brought up the idea of the sheer size of it. On the one hand, could we have terms, say 15-year terms for peers? I've heard that before. Uh, and secondly, a retirement age. The second is problematic because you would then get really big figures, say someone like Lord Lawson, told to um, uh, uh, hang up his uh, legislative uh, wares and Mm. um, sit on the sidelines. So nothing is simple, but I do think this summer has shown at least the size of the thing needs to be tackled. Although Tina Stoll, you mentioned the leader of the House of Lords, Tina Stoll, Baroness Stoll, wrote in another paper, I think on Monday, saying that actually the costs of the House of Lords fell by 13%. Uh, during the last parliament and since they introduced the ability to reform 30 peers have taken retirement so it would be unfair to say there has no reform taking place at all uh, it would be un- unfair to say that and and as i say actually people who are against reform of any kind have a rather good trump card which is that well actually we've got a fragile economy we're reshaping britain's benefit system uh, like never before why on earth would we waste time mm. on reforming a second chamber that uh, unlike me and perhaps the people in this podcast the public don't spend a lot of time thinking about. That's a very good point. But I do think when you get someone like Boris Johnson, who said this week that we need a big cut in numbers, something might happen now. Melanie Phillips, are you as disgusted as everyone else by by what's happening? Or actually, do you see the Lords as a place that, for example, during the Tony Blair years, did a lot to stand up for Britain's uh, historic civil liberties. I think what's happened to the House of Lords is an absolute tragedy for Britain. It's become, as Michael says, uh, a kind, it's becoming a kind of byword for cronyism and kind of political corruption. There may be some tinkering around the edges reforms, stopping uh, the numbers increasing to the extent that they have done, and so on, or ours. But these are, these are really minor changes. The fact is that uh, fogies like myself said... When there was this great cry of reform the Lords years ago, get rid of the hereditary peers, and everybody said the hereditary peers are indefensible. No, that's how Britain was constructed. Its constitution rested on stuff which, like that, couldn't really be justified, except that it worked. The fact was the hereditaries were truly independent. Now we have the inevitable result, which is true patronage and cronyism and political I'm not sure the Labour Party would agree with you. I think if you looked at the voting record of the hereditaries, they tended, when they turned up, to largely vote Conservative. Well, they may have done, but they were independent. They weren't bought. The fact is, as people have sagely said, since Law's reform was mooted at the beginning, I think, of the 20th century, once you start trying to reform the Lords, you're on a hiding to nothing, because once you start unpicking a bit of the British Constitution, the rest of it unravels. And this is what we're living through. But what about my point that actually they defended the British Constitution in, during the Blair years, for example, a lot of them frustrated delayed, amended a lot of the Blair governments, as some would describe it, attacks on our civil liberties. For sure. This is the historic role of the Lords. It's to be a break on the elected chamber because we recognise, our constitution recognises that election is not the be-all and end-all. And that is the magnificence of the constitution. And to a certain extent, the Lords still fulfil that terribly important function. But the more the Lords 
are composed of people who owe their existence there to political cronyism of the most venal kind, the less able they will be as a body to perform that important function and have the trust and confidence of the public in doing so. Now, Patrick Kidd, I don't know whether you agree with the basic thesis that... um the Lords is being stuffed full of political advisers and people that Cameron owes things to, perhaps like Douglas Hogg. But are we seeing a little bit, perhaps a first sign, that without a strong opposition, David Cameron is perhaps thinking he can get away with things that if he was facing a, a strong opposition across the, uh, the House of Commons, he wouldn't be able to deliver? Yes, I think that's probably true, although I have no doubt that Labour would be doing exactly the same if they were in government and trying to fill it with their cronies, as they have done. I have a couple of views. One, I don't think it is packed. The fact that it's got more uh, politicians than anybody other than the Chinese Parliament doesn't mean they all attend. In fact, some... No, never seen. But people like Lord Attenborough, well, he's never seen these days because he's dead, but he, he <laughs> only showed... Uh, disgraceful. He, he showed up very rarely when there was a debate on, on the arts at which he had something to contribute. Lord Putnam too. Lord Sugar is hardly ever there. Well, this is in itself, though, a problem, isn't it? If well, you, you appoint people who don't ever turn up, what's the point in having them in the House of Lords? Well, they're not claiming they're £300. I'd, I'd rather the people who don't turn up uh, than those who do turn up get their £300 and then go without speaking, like Lord Hanningfield. I, my feeling generally is that it should be a place of experience and knowledge and, and, and the brains that come from having done things. So I, I like hereditary peers. I agree with Melanie. I think generally they acted out of duty. They were attenders. They had knowledge built up from, from their business careers. Bishops, I think, are good things. I quite like to be a bishop. <laughs> um, and there should be other religious leaders, I think, in there as well. The chief rabbi doesn't sit in the Lords, does he? Yeah, uh, well, does the he? former chief rabbi does. I don't think the current okay, chief rabbi. But the, yeah. other yeah. religious leaders. I'd like to see vice-chancellors of some of our universities be there. Um, There's loads of university people in there. They've been the But Lord. by virtue of their place, mm. well, I mean, I won't name names, but there was one person a while ago who was an academic who was given a peerage, and I naively said to one of his colleagues, has he got it for his achievements in the field of X? He said, no, no, it's because he gave money to the Tory party. Mm. We have seen a lot of placemen in the latest tranche, and I just worry that they're going there to be whipped. There's a rumour that they're being told they don't actually even have to speak. They just have to make sure they show up to vote. Mm. And that's really quite worrying. Although, as one member of the House of Lords said to me, if it's true that um, that Kate Fall, David Cameron's uh, gatekeeper, won't have to speak, then we'll all be blessedly relieved from not having to hear her posh voice, Ooh. he said. <laughs> Michael. Yeah, I would just make one point in defence of uh, David Cameron, and that's that his point that actually the House of Lords needs to be, in the way it's made up, more representative of, of the Commons, i.e. slightly more uh, Conservatives in the latest tranche, I think is entirely reasonable. I would just say it's, it's the personnel and the sheer size of it. I take Patrick's point about people not (laughs) turning up, but in itself I would suggest people in our uh, second chamber not turning up uh, isn't something we should probably celebrate. Well, maybe we should have two tiers. You should have, we call them senator if you want, but an active lord and someone who's given peer because knight isn't good enough for their honour, perhaps. Yeah, make a a working peerage something different. Yes. Well, what do you think, Melanie Phillips, of the, Michael says that you're making the comma the the laws more representative of similar in some ways to the mm. to the commas. Isn't there a case for actually sort of making it different? Absolutely. So, for example, UKIP won four million votes, and they've which compared to the Liberal Democrats, who've got two point five mm. million votes. The Liberal Democrats got eleven peers in this list. UKIP didn't get a single one. Um, the Greens won over a million 
votes. They didn't get a single peer. Is there a sense in which actually the Lords could be used to respond to the public mood of, you know, we have a government elected by 37% of the vote. The appointments to the Lords could somehow reflect the fact that there are other voices out there that could be represented. I agree entirely. Um, the question is how you decide who those voices are. Uh, attempts to make the Lords representative leads you inevitably into the uh, dilemma that you then, if you make the Lords really representative, then you have two representative bodies vying mm. with each other and therefore, therefore you get a kind of constitutional political stalemate. Mm. You want the Lords to be not representative <laughs> but you do want it to be representative of the loosest form of public opinion, uh, which means it has to be independent, it has to be random, it, it, it almost can't be selected, you can't gerrymander it, you can't actually appoint to a formula, mm. um, and you've got to keep politicians out of it. That's the problem. And that was what hereditaries managed to do. I mean, people didn't like them because of our obsession with, you know, class and privilege and all that rubbish. But the fact is, as Patrick says, they had a sense of duty, and that's what's gone. Um, and that comes with with randomness. Mm -hmm. um, there is something very important about randomness. Once you start choosing randomness, mm -hmm. you've had it. <laughs> of course, we have randomness in jury service. Now, having been on a jury, I wouldn't want to put some of the people I was in the jury room with into the House of Lords, but, but people did there attend and listen and form their best judgment. And you're absolutely right. It, it's worked. It shouldn't, but it does. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of public support for the idea of these crossbenchers who win, uh, whoever yes. holds the government, they make up quite a, a large part of the Lords and they're are not attached to any party. Mm. Yeah. I do wonder whether we need a different body to to choose them rather than it being the, the Prime Minister's will. Because then favours are handed out. We've had Douglas Hogg, you've mentioned, yeah. who uh, was... The, the agriculture minister when George Osborne was his special advisor and mm. there's a suspicion that favours have been returned. To be fair, there. That there is some sort of scrutiny process. We've read, for example, that Nick Clegg wanted David Laws um, yes. ennobled and he was apparently blocked because of some misgivings over expenses, questions yes. that he faced in the last parliament. So it isn't entirely automatic that someone who's nominated no, that's goes true. into the Lords. I think their tax affairs, for example, are inspect it. So the favour goes the other way as well. So it's been um, registered by Archbishop Cranmer, the, the, the religion blogger, that Anne Widdicombe really should be in the Lords. She would be exactly the sort of independent spirit independent. who wouldn't follow a whip. The kind of crossbencher that Michael talks about. A very crossbencher. <laughs> um, but David Cameron was spared to Michael Howard at the time of something of the night and perhaps that's why she's not in. Michael Howard is also on the body that chooses where the peers go in. Wow. Oh, indeed. Well, um, Patrick, let's come on to your topic. Um, I can't believe that you really believe that the era of image-obsessed politics is over. Um, you, you cite in evidence that Jeremy Corbyn, who is perhaps not the most handsome, uh, carefully um, presented politician of our lives, is about to become a Labour leader. But I would put to you that if he does become a Labour leader, he won't do very well, and perhaps he will prove that image still does matter. I'm very worried by the news that he might have ditched the vest, actually. Did you see this? Over I there? have heard Which that is, he might be ditching his vest. Well, this, OK, I'm focusing on the important issues here, but there was a story, and Anthony Seldon has written a biography of the Prime Minister in which one thing that caught the eye was that when David Cameron went to see the Somerset levels, he had a perfectly good pair of 
Hunter Greenwell is in his boot and was told by an advisor, no, you must go to Asda and get some cheap black ones because that will show what a man of the people you are. And I just think it's pathetic. Everyone and knows... And it backfired, didn't it? Because they look very shiny. They look very shiny. And, and people said, how disgraceful he went and bought some new yeah. <laughs> David Cameron is posh. I think anyone who has a problem with that isn't going to vote for him anyway. And so the constant running away from anything that might be seen as being... Po- and it goes the other way too. Andy Burnham with his... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Ridiculous. I can't say what sort of biscuit I might eat because people might judge me. I'll say I like chips and gravy instead. It's just <laughs> pathetic. And But I wonder, is this our fault? I mean, as a, as a diarist and sketch writer, I focus on the frivolities, but I certainly don't intend them to shape anyone's vote. With all due respect to Patrick, and when you know someone says that, you know they're going to be very rude, but with all due <laughs> respect to Patrick, Melanie Phillips, <laughs> this is nonsense, isn't it? Image-obsessed politics is here to stay. As much as we... we otherwise uh image obsessed politics is absolutely here to say but i think that i think politicians make this terrible mistake and they make it in greater to greater degree all the time they are terrified of us they're terrified of the media so they see all the sort of media rubbish and this you know the, the welly story was a typical you know silly season story but there's plenty of other stories all the time about appearance you know they read you know columnists like myself perhaps and others. I hope uh, Philip Hammond hasn't read your column this week, but we'll come on to that. Well, I, I didn't actually attack his style of dress. No. <laughs> um, but they, they read people in newspapers making fun or criticising people's appearance in public life, and they take it seriously. They think that people out there, the readers, actually take this seriously and that it matters to them. People do take quite a lot of image seriously, but what they take seriously is the kind of serious bit of the image. For example, they're obsessed by authenticity, as we mm. know. They are. They take a very dim view of someone not being true to himself. Mm. So, for example, David Cameron exchanging his Hunter Wellies symbol of poshness, but which he actually had yes. in his for (laughs) cheap wellies to pretend that he was a man of the people that gets up people's noses because it's the falsity of it Mm. so that is what people worry about but the actual sort of shell uh, of suiting uh, to put it that way uh, Mm. doesn't actually matter to people at all I mean Jeremy Corbyn I mean for goodness sake I mean okay uh, he's not exactly a male model but I mean how many of our politicians are oil paintings I mean that's really not the point Nigel Mm. Farage I mean can anyone really say his astounding popularity was to do with his facial features or uh, exciting mustard corduroys I mean it's absurd (laughs) it's to do uh, with the image they they, they portray 
Jeremy Corbyn's on his third marriage, and Katie Hopkins says she quite um, admires him. So there must be something. It's the beard. There, the, the, the beard. The, I definitely think it must be the the, the beard. Um, Michael <laughs> Savage, um, I asked you about the biography that got all this going. We've got a biography of the Prime Minister written when he's probably you know only just over halfway through his his premiership. We had a piece in Monday's paper by Claire Foges saying. Actually, you can't really judge a prime minister until 20, 30 years after they've left office because so many of their decisions that they make that look good at the time don't necessarily stand the test of time. Will you be reading this biography or will you be waiting until 2040? Oh, well, I think if I don't read it, he really is in trouble. Um, but uh, I'll be reading it and, of course... It's your job to read it, in other words. Yeah, well, and we've already actually had a biography of, of Cameron by the Times political editor, uh, Francis Elliott, in which we l did learn, actually, something relating to this topic, which was Cameron's reputation as the, quote, chillaxing Prime Minister, uh, playing Fruit Ninja on his phone, uh, <laughs> being the great fan of the box set. And I wonder if, actually, people didn't quite like the fact that he could uh, relax uh, when, the, when the opportunity arose. And there's more to come, of course, because there's another uh, book on David Cameron coming out uh, later in the year. So it Call will... Me Dave by Lord Ashcroft in... and Isabel Oakshot. Indeed, which could, uh, knowing Lord Ashcroft's uh, penchant for mischief, <laughs> could provide us with some more talking points for the podcast, perhaps, later this year. But uh, if I could just play devil advocate for one moment, in defence of uh, the image shapers, the spinners. There was one uh, big moment in the election campaign, the Ed Miliband bacon sandwich moment, which actually did help uh, shape his, his image. It confirmed his reputation as, as weird, a man who couldn't do normal day-to-day -day things, head in the clouds. Actually, his uh, spinners told him not to eat the sandwich in public and actually to be more careful about what was caught on video. He ignored it. He wanted to be a man of the people who could eat a sandwich sensibly. And it backfired, so perhaps if he listened you to his spinners... think it really did him damage? Well, I think it's certainly embedded, embedded in the public consciousness, this feeling that somehow he odd was... Ed. Yeah, he was an, an odd chap, pulled odd faces and, and maybe wasn't one of them. The thing is that if oddness was seen as an electoral asset, then uh, that normalness, then, then it wouldn't have mattered, but it, that was a problem. I'm not sure that David Cameron being posh is really seen as much of a disadvantage. What's so odd in that particular decision over the wellies is, actually, if you ask people what do you think of David Cameron, they'd say posh, and um, a lot of people voted for him, and it isn't an exclusion of being a, a good or bad Prime Minister. So I think um, this particular one is, is quite hard to explain, actually. OK, well, let's move on to our third topic, which is the one that um, you've chosen for us, uh, Melanie Phillips. It's also the subject of your column in Monday's Times newspaper, and I should say to all Times subscribers listening, if you go to the Times.co uk slash comment central i'll post some links to the articles we've been discussing including melanie's piece and you didn't hold back melanie in your um piece you said that um since philip hammond the foreign secretary had reopened the british embassy in tehran events had made him look like an idiot and the union flag that he hoisted above that embassy had no red in it no blue in it only the white of surrender Tell us why you are so unhappy about the idea that we should talk to Iran to try and resolve our tensions with that country. The principal point that I'm trying to make is that Iran uh, is not just a threat to this country, but is actually in a state of self-declared war against this country. 
It has committed numerous outrages against this country. It has been responsible for the deaths of numerous British soldiers, which, it's be, which have been blown up uh, through roadside bombs and Shia, Iran-backed Shia militias in Iraq. Uh, just a few years ago, it took Royal Navy personnel, 15 Royal Navy sailors and Marines, uh, kidnapped them and held them hostage for two weeks and then humiliated them. It's committed other atrocities against us and many more against American interests. It says repeatedly that uh, a death to America, uh, death to Britain. And indeed, those slogans were screamed by a mob outside the British Embassy as it was being reopened, as Mr Hammond stood watching the Union flag being raised. Do you think it was a, a, a mob? Was it not just a gathering over Iranian? There are no spontaneous gatherings in Iran. Uh, Iran is a cruel and despotic regime. Uh, which, again, people don't realise. The Iranian people are broadly lovely people, very pro-Western, very sophisticated, and they are under the yoke of a regime which is now running at its rate of executions in which it's killing dissidents and gays, hanging them from cranes, is running at record levels. Now, so, the the, reason, so Rouhani's arrival has not... Rouhani is not a moderate, first of all, and secondly, although he speaks like a moderate, but the fact, one of the many facts people don't understand about Iran is that Iran is irrelevant. There is only one politician in Iran who matters, who's the supreme leader, and he reiterates all the time that he wishes to export revolutionary Islam to the world, he wishes to destroy the West, he wishes to attack America, he wishes to attack Britain, and he intends to commit genocide against the state of Israel. Now, the reason why Mr. Hammond presided over the reopening of the embassy in the wake of the deal that has been done by the P5 plus one nations led by America, uh, which is ostensibly a deal to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, which was once considered to be absolutely unconscionable. Now, my view, and we don't have time to go into the details, but my view is that the terms of this deal are really not a deal at all. It's an abject surrender in which Iran is being enabled to get the bomb at a maximum because of 10-year year delay. You mentioned the point in your piece is larger because you don't think the inspection regime is rigorous or independent. Indeed, enough. side deals which have emerged, the text of side deals made by the IAEA, the independent, uh, the, the uh, Atomic Energy Authority and Iran, uh, which indeed Mr Obama himself and Mr Cameron have not seen, but the text which has been leaked states uh, quite unequivocally that Iran will be responsible for its own verification, indeed collecting its own soil samples. This is a farce. But mm. the real reason Mr Hammond was so shameful in reopening the embassy is that associated with this farcical and terribly dangerous deal is the, limit, is the, the ending of sanctions against Iran, which will open up under some estimates £150 billion worth of trade with Iran. British companies are slavering at this opportunity. And that's what this is all about. It's about money. We have made a deal with the devil uh, because of money, uh, money interests, uh, which perhaps dominate everything. But also, you know, it was said about Iraq, and I disagreed with this argument when it was used about the war in Iraq that we were America's poodle. Well, my goodness, we're America's poodle now. We do not stand up against the American president. What about the, the general geostrategic view, though, that more prosperous countries are generally more peaceful countries, that if you keep a country like Iran poor, it will be more vulnerable to the sort of extremities that you, you have described. That middle class, that Iranian population that you mentioned yeah. that actually is more moderate than the, yeah. the leadership, do we not empower them by trading? With no, them? we do not empower them by trading because the money goes to 
into terrorism, which will be used against peoples in the Middle East and against us. Iran was a prosperous country um, until the regime came along. Um, it's absolutely right that the people of Iran are great people. We have betrayed them several times over. They had a purported or attempted green revolution some years ago. They took to the streets bravely. They were put down by the regime. We did nothing. And by this deal, we are empowering the regime. We are empowering it to increase its clout in the region. We are enabling it to have much more money to spend on terror, to embed itself and to continue to persecute its people. We have abandoned the Iranian people by this deal. Michael, Patrick, one of the interesting things that Melanie mentions in her article is that it has been a bit of a non-story in Britain, whether you agree with the deal or disagree with the Iran deal, whether you agree with the opening of the embassy or not. The British people seem uninterested, really, almost one way or the other, neither enthusiastic or opposed. Is there a problem that we are just so weary of events in the Middle East that we've just lost even our attention, let alone got got the call wrong well there's perhaps only so many middle east stories that that we we can take and, and what's happening in syria is a very alive situation not not just the loss of human life but the, now the desecration of palmyra which is a tragedy and i wish there was something that we could do by force to, to sweep them out of there but i i bow to melanie's uh, very detailed knowledge and, and passion on this subject i just wonder whether having an embassy allows us intelligence routes to find out what's really going on much more easily. It's not an endorsement of the regime, but it's giving us a toehold in a country that we need to keep an eye on. And also that Iran isn't the only despotic, cruel country in the Middle East. Uh, Saudi Arabia's pretty bad, and we tend to like them. The arrival of Rouhani was uh, really heralded by Britain, and very early on, the position of the Foreign Office in Downing Street had been to encourage him wherever they could, and it seems to be the calculation has been made that actually Rouhani's success or failure will be in a large part down to the economy. If that's the case, uh, uh, they have to be seen to encourage Iran's economy. As well as there being a diplomatic view, whether you agree or not, that actually if you bind in countries like Iran to world prosperity, then that is only going to to help them. It's all a calculation, uh, and there are certainly no certainties uh, in any of this. But uh, Melanie's point about uh, trade deals is certainly uh, true. I remember Jack Straw saying last year that um, when he visited Tehran on the Lufthansa flight back home, it was uh, packed full of German businessmen and uh, perhaps Britain needed to be in on that. Final word to you, Melanie, on, on, on your topic. Is it the basic thing is, even if this is undesirable option, it's almost the only option that the current leadership of the West is willing to contemplate. They're not willing to take... Iran on, that we are exhausted of any kind of intervention like that in the region. And so we've just decided we've just got to try and make friends and have peace with this country because we won't do anything else. It reminds me of the theme song of MASH, Suicide is Painless. Um, appeasement is the only option? Absolutely never. The political class thinks that's the case? Absolutely right. But it's not the only option. The only reason why the Iranians came to that wretched negotiating table in the first place was because of sanctions. The proper route should have been to tighten sanctions much, much more. It's the only way you can have any chance of the Republican Party in the US and a few dissident Democrats still want to to do. The, The deal has to be... Yes. ratified still by well, the American Congress, doesn't it? Indeed. I don't follow, I, do, I don't begin to understand the interstices of American constitutional uh, uh, prepar- uh, politics. But as I understand it, the, 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 the president can, in the last 
analysis, override Congress if it opposes him. Politically, will he be keen to do that? Well, we have to see how this is going to play out. The balance of American public opinion now is against the deal. Very strongly against uh, the deal. Interesting that they've had a debate that that we haven't, and they have decided they do not want I'm afraid debate here has been poisoned by the war in Iraq. Whatever you think about the war in Iraq, it seems to me absolutely ludicrous to think, as people now seem to think, that if ever our intelligence service or our politicians tell us that any country in the Middle East poses a threat to us, we will never believe them again. This is madness. Yeah. Okay, Melanie Phillips, Michael Savage, Patrick Kidd, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks to Dave McGuire, producer. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.